Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom and welcome to another episode of Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I'm so honored today to be joined by Susie Adler Thorpe, um, who has done so much for this community and this city. Um, Susie was a longtime political columnist for our local paper, The Commercial Appeal, and um, to this day is still a regular contributor um, to different um, outlets around town. Uh, She also has a communications consulting business, um, which she is the owner of. Um, But for our purposes, uh, Susie is the founding chair of our Temple Israel Museum um, and is the driving force behind our upcoming exhibit on Rabbi Wax, Rabbi James A. Wax, his life and legacy here um, at our Temple Museum, which has been in the works for many, many years. So we're so honored to have Susie with us today. And um, she's going to talk a little bit about her life in the museum, but today we're mainly going to focus on this tremendous exhibit that Susie has really poured her life into. Um, Susie, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you're here. Thank you, Rabbi. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to be here on behalf of the Temple Israel Museum and its board of directors. So, Susie, what first drove you to um, work at the Temple Israel Museum or work towards the creation of the Temple Museum. And then could you talk a little bit about um, not only its founding, but what it has meant to you um, and to this temple ever since? Well, everything I've ever done for the museum has really been a labor of love, and here's why. Many years ago, I think it was in the early 1990s, Jimmy Jalinak, who was a former president of this congregation, invited me for lunch at uh, a hamburger place in Midtown. And he proposed that I go back to my parents and ask if they would um, be willing to participate in opening a museum at Temple that would house their collection of Judaica, which was rather extensive. And uh, I took the idea back to my parents that evening, and, um, and my father thought, well, maybe that's a possibility. So as I recall, he and Jimmy got together fairly often and brought principals from the temple together. And uh, June 6, 1994, the museum was open. And also it houses not only the Herta and Justin H. Adler collection of Judaica, but it was also open based on the really the wonderful interest and generosity of Honey and Rudy Scheidt. Hmm. So it's, um, and it has, it's, it has, uh, the museum has received accolades from museum professionals around the country, and we're very, very proud of it. And 
everything I do there is in a way carrying out the vision and the legacy of what my parents had hoped to provide. Hmm. What, a, what a wonderful way to honor their memory um, and also to really bolster um, our synagogue, first of all, our um, knowledge of our own history, right. um, but also through your parents' collection, largely of Holocaust um, artifacts, uh, the, the memory and the history of, of who we are as a people. I think that um, my father, who was a psychiatrist, by the way, um, for him, collecting Judaica was in his small way bringing the Jewish community back together again. Mm. And he was a Holocaust survivor, and as was my mother. And so the collection of Judaica was, was a passion for them. They were inveterate art collectors, but I think that their collection of Judaica emotionally meant the most to them. And it's a way of um, collecting and bringing together things that endure even when the people who owned them or used them or celebrated with them um, no longer, um, th their time was cut short. That's right. I mean, each piece in there um, teaches us about the Jewish way of life. And part of the mission of the Temple Israel Museum is to teach. And so that's why we bring in every year one or two traveling exhibits um, that we have on the other side of the museum uh, physically uh, to feature exhibits that um, um, have meaning and purpose uh, in, the, in the Jewish world. And so that brings us, I think, to what we're getting ready to talk about, and that's the exhibit that we're putting up. Uh, it's going to be called, it is called um, Righteous Among Men, Rabbi James A. Wax, A Life Dedicated to Social Justice. So uh, before we talk about that, I just <laughs> think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that we are, as a synagogue are so lucky to have um, this museum. Some synagogues, not, not many, but some have um, museums. Very few have ones on the caliber um, or quality as ours. Um, and so it's just, uh, I'd encourage you, um, if you um, have never been to our museum, let this be your, your first visit um, for the Rabbi Wax uh, exhibit. But I hope that um, once you're, you're here, um, it's just upstairs from uh, the sanctuary entrance, uh, just outside the balcony um, uh, to our sanctuary. And once you come once, I know it won't be your last time because it really is a tremendous space. But so let, let's get right into the Rabbi Wax exhibit. Um, you have dedicated the last two years plus of your life, um, at much so much of your, your personal and your professional time to this exhibit. Can you talk a little bit about how the idea to honor um, and to um, lift up the legacy of Rabbi Wax in this way, how did that idea um, come into being? Well, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, we were in the early stages of COVID, and the temple, of course, was shut down. And once the temple shuts, so does the museum. And so those of us who serve on the board of directors, and we have about, I think they're off the top of my head, 14 members on the board of directors, and it's a wonderful board, by the way. Um, we met over Zoom and, you know, we talked about, we knew that COVID would come to an end one day. We knew the temple would reopen, and we knew that the museum 
would reopen, what would we do for the first High Holy Day exhibit um, for the museum? And the exhibit we traditionally put up during the High Holy Days is really the, the big one for the year. And so this also happened, This one of these discussions, happened just about the time after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And so we had a discussion about that, and someone proposed that why don't we have an exhibit about social justice and its connection with Judaism. And so we talked about that. Everybody seemed to be pretty enthusiastic. We met on Zoom one or two more times about that. In the meantime, our president, Maylin Mansbach at the time, checked out different traveling exhibits. There really weren't any, as I recall, that we were enthused about. I think there was one, but it was really way too expensive for us to, to rent. So um, it was a challenge. How do we have an exhibit about social justice? And, you know, I there are couple of people on the board and my friends who I grew up with here in Memphis under Rabbi Wax, who was my rabbi at the time. And it dawned on us collectively, well, wait a minute. We can, we have built exhibits here before, um, we being the museum, and why not highlight Rabbi Wax? Who was he? He was a man who was born in a small town in Herculaneum, Missouri, whoever knows about that place, and how did he become a leader in the civil rights movement in this area of the country um, and known among some of the great civil rights leaders of the time? And why not find out about Rabbi Wax? We've never really featured him before, and we all know that he lives in history. And so we were excited about it. And so as I want to do sometimes to uh, <laughs> take on an extra project, um, I said, well, let me look into it. Let me see if there's enough information. I just didn't think that there was going to be enough information <laughs> uh, to build a mu museum exhibit. And after a month of looking into it, I thought, uh-oh, I'm in too deep over my head. I, there's just no way I could do this by myself. So I went back to the board, and we talked about it, and we decided that if we're going to do um, a museum exhibit on Rabbi Wax, we're going first rate, first class, the whole way. It was, um, it was a very smart move by our board. So um, we hired um, what? I felt, still do, and the board has come to believe really one of the most wonderful and most professional researchers in this area, and he was thrilled to come on board. And, and who I, was that? Tom Jones. Uh, he's also a former colleague of mine, and, and for full disclosure, he's a very close friend. Hmm. And so Tom and I started... I guess it was probably July of last year, July of 2021, we started the research. In, so almost a year and a half ago. Yeah, in, in serious effort. And um, we found that Rabbi Wax had given probably two-thirds of his personal collection of papers, of speeches, of <laughs> plaques, of certificates, whatever, scrapbooks, 
to the Memphis Public Library to the Memphis Room. So we went there and found that there were 13 drawers dedicated to Rabbi Wax. And I know I went and met Tom at the library maybe six or seven times. I know that he was back there at least twice that much and on email with the researchers at the library to gather the information. We went through every paper, every certificate, every book, every scrapbook um, that they have, and we were able to cull down what we needed for this exhibit. And um, that's really how it, how it started. Um, mm. it, the research ha- took us to Cincinnati, to the American Jewish Archives as part of the Hebrew Union College, and we spent a couple of days there in the archives going through um, his papers. He, they do have a few drawers there of Rabbi Wax. And what was most interesting is that after Rabbi Wax, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but Rabbi Wax, during the civil rights movement here, the day, Rabbi Wax was president of the Memphis Ministers Association. And the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Rabbi Wax led a march from St. Mary's Church in downtown Memphis about a mile and a half to City Hall to confront Mayor Henry Loeb. And in that march were about 250 ministers. And his confrontation with Mayor Loeb was on every newscast that evening, was featured in every major newspaper in the country. Um, And you'll see it. You'll see it in this exhibit. And so it... um, it was only natural that um, people would respond to his confrontation with Mayor Lowe by letter at that time. There was no email or no texting. And every letter that Rabbi Wax received um, after that confrontation, he had stored or put um, at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati. There are 121 letters in opposition. 81 letters in favor, and we read every single one of them. Some of them are very pleasant, and some of them are very very shocking. Mm. Um, he also put there a letter that was unopened. It was still sealed, and it said on the outside of the envelope, not to be opened until after the death of Rabbi James A. Wax. We opened the letter, and it is in, the muse- it is in part of this exhibit. And, read for the first time ever. Yeah, yeah. And... He also has there, had there some of his speeches, written speeches, but that was the most exciting thing we found were those letters. And I think you, Rabbi, are pretty excited about that too because we found one from uh, a wonderful letter of support from your, your grandfather. That's correct. And well, yeah. I, I was just very honored to be able to read that letter um, as a part of this exhibit that my, my grandfather, um, and on behalf of my grandfather, Phyllis and Sumner Levine, um, had written in the days following, yeah, this monumental event. It was a monumental event, and um, we have in the narrative um, all about it. But the the research also took us, took me, I flew down to Atlanta and met with Rabbi Wax's oldest son, and um, we talked about his father for, I guess, a couple, two or three hours, and, and um, he gave me... 
or will actually let me pick out what we wanted to display in the exhibit, and he sent them all to me, and they will all, all of Rabbi Wax's uh, personal possessions that are uh, featured in the exhibit, he will, he has given wow. to Temple Israel, and to, they will remain in the Temple Archive. So um, the exhibit is, is really basically a timeline of this really great rabbi who believed deeply in social justice. And, and the curiosity is, here was a man who was born in 1912 uh, in a small mining town in Missouri, Herculaneum, Missouri. What do they mine there, do you know? Um, you know, I never asked, <laughs> but I guess something. Yeah. They had a big smokestack, so it could have been coal. I really don't know. And um, his father and mother were immigrants from the Pale of Russia. They settled in Herculaneum. There's no record why. And he had a dry goods store there. So young James and his younger brother Leon worked in the dry goods store, and the post office was next door, so they would go over and talk to the neighbors and, and became very friendly and very well-known around town. And um, the young James grew into, as his teen years, he became a, apparently a really good orator and spoke a lot around town, and he spoke um, on several occasions in the Methodist Church in Herculaneum. And he went off to college and went to the Washington U. Go and, Bears. Huh? Go Bears. Go my, Bears. My here, yeah, well. Right. And, but but I, one thing I missed to tell you is that growing up in Herculaneum, he was the only Jewish family. There's a reason he spoke at the Methodist Church and not the synagogue. That's right. There was no synagogue. And he had no Jewish friends. He had never lived among Jews before. But he knew he was Jewish because his parents taught him so. Hmm. And did, did they speak Yiddish in the home, do you know? There is no evidence that they spoke Yiddish at home. Hmm. Um, but he, they would go to Temple in St. Louis on the High Holy Days. It's about 30 or 40 miles oh, roughly Today, uh, driving back and forth from Memphis to St. Louis, when I was in college, you would always kind of pass by. It's it's just as you get outside of St. Louis, not far, but with modern highways. I don't right. know how long it took back then. Oh, it probably took hours, several mm. hours at, wow. at, at best. And when he was a student in WashU, he went with some friends to Temple. And uh, he heard a rabbi named Ferdinand Isserman and Rabbi Isserman challenged the youth to be good Jews and to believe in social justice. And that was the pillar they were to stand on. And we have in Rabbi Wax's memoirs that he remembers that he thought to himself, well, if this is what Judaism is about, it's for me. Hmm. And so he wound up graduating from... Um, Southeast Missouri State because he had to go there because of, of the depression and money was was scarce, and from there he um, made his way to the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, and I'm not going to reveal everything about it, but it's a fascinating journey how he got there. I will tell you that he did apply um, to go to the HUC to become a rabbi, and on his first application he was rejected. He just didn't know any Hebrew, but it didn't take him a year to become proficient in Hebrew, and and the story of his life at the HUC is fascinating, 
and where he went after that. And he, he ended up graduating at the very top of his class in Hebrew. That's correct. Which just goes to show the tremendous intellect. Yes. Um, I, I just, before we move on, I was just so struck by that, um, that image of Rabbi Isserman uh, having such an influence on Rabbi Wax. Um, you know, I can speak from personal experience, um, being so inspired by rabbis that I encountered as a child who ultimately inspired me, um, at least in part, um, to, to want to be a rabbi. Or, But at the very least, I don't think uh, the goal of every rabbi is to inspire other people to be rabbis. That's a nice perk when that, when that happens. But um, to inspire people to want to make the world a better place. And so when Rabbi, uh, not, not at that point Rabbi Wax, but little James Wax was inspired um, by Rabbi Isserman, it's just a beautiful image to think about him in that moment and then over the course of the next five decades inspiring countless other people to want to make the world a better place. Uh, just really a tremendous um, uh, shalshelet, a tremendous chain um, of, of inspiration and of our tradition um, just generation after generation uh, striving to make the world a better place. I think that Rabbi Isserman had a, probably a good deal of influence um, uh, on Rabbi Wax's future as a rabbi. There are no specific records about that, except he, Rabbi Wax was very impressed as a young man by Isserman and his belief in social justice. Um, in what we call that prophetic call of uh, helping the needy and those most vulnerable among us. Um, Rabbi Wax was always, even as a kid, for the underdog, for the little guy. And he, we, he talks about that in his memoirs. But I think the, one of the real inspirations for Rabbi Wax to become a rabbi was the Methodist minister in Herculaneum. He, interestingly enough, no one ever tried to convert Rabbi Wax to another religion. They encouraged him to stick with his own and to become a rabbi. And I think that's where um, it's interesting that, that so much of his influence came from Herculaneum and from those he grew up with who were not Jewish. Mm. That That is uh, fascinating. Um, just that, yeah, that... The, the kavod, the respect that those ministers gave to him, not trying to bring him into Christianity, but but um, respecting where he came from and, and encouraging him to embrace social justice through his own tradition. Um, I, I read in, um, in the exhibit, uh, you gave me a little sneak peek. I did. That he actually, before he ever knew he wanted to be a rabbi, he... he was still, of course, so motivated by social justice, he wanted to um, go into politics and to become governor yes. of Missouri so that he could really, truly affect practical change. And this is a theme that we will come back to. Um, he wasn't a guy, even though his most famous moment um, that he'll be known known by to more people than any other was this big public confrontation, which, which we'll come back to, um, he really was not a grandstanding type of person. He wasn't, um, of course, they didn't have Facebook back then, but he's not the kind of person who would just post about something on Facebook just to make sure that everybody know how he, uh, how he felt. He wasn't about rhetoric or um, 
or grandstanding, he, he tried to get things done that would actually have an impact. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But I just think it's so interesting that he wanted to be a, uh, in government um, and affect change that way and then ultimately uh, chose a, a different path but, of course, still had a great impact. No, that, that, what you say is correct about uh, Rabbi Wax. He was not confrontational. He believed that problems should be solved quietly and behind the scenes by negotiation. He never was a big one uh, to confront people, which, which makes his confrontation with Mayor Henry Loeb in 1968 even more of uh, an interesting effort because that's not, that wasn't his personality at all. And, and we'll get into it, but later he, he apologized to Mayor Loeb, not for the content of his speech, but for his emotional um, posture during that confrontation. Mm-hmm. Right. He apologizes for, uh, like you said, not, he, not for what he said, but for raising his voice, which yes. just tells you how yes. you know, gentle, even though his voice was, um, the, as some would later describe, the voice of God, um, he felt bad um, or regretted having raised his voice to another person. Yes, um, that's correct. So let's get back to his path towards becoming a rabbi, or, or and then we want to get quickly to um, his time in Memphis. Mm-hmm. But once he decided to become a rabbi, um, what do you think drove him to the rabbin, he, away from law or, or government? Um, why... Why Judaism as the path to social justice? Well, I think that Rabbi Wax's parents instilled with him um, the basic tenets of what they believed Judaism was all about, and that was to be a good and moral man or person and to believe in helping others. And he always did, even as a even as a kid. I mean, we have him quoted in the narrative of recalling that he, he saw injustice when he was a young man in Herculaneum, and it always bothered him. Um, what took him away from the path of politics? I hope good common sense. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the confrontation he would have faced in politics, far greater than he could ever face as a, as a rabbi who could affect change behind the scenes. I mean, just as an example, and I know we're going to get to um, that big day of his career when he confronted Mayor Loeb, but when he, the ministers met at that church at at St. Mary's Episcopal Church downtown the day after King was killed, the ministers voted overwhelmingly to march to City Hall. Rabbi Wax did not want to do that. He was against the march, but because he was president of the organization, then he agreed he would do that. And um, an interesting story I can tell you is, I can tell you two great stories about that. Well, well I guess while we're, t- maybe yeah, we well, should wait until we sure, get to the sure. whole. We'll definitely come back yeah. to that. So just while we're on the subject of his Judaism, we were speaking right before uh, we started recording about, um, about just about that, about him seeing suffering as a young person. Right. And... Um, there's a beautiful reading in Mishkan Tefillah in our prayer book. I believe it's by Edmund Flegg. Um, 
when, and it says something like when, um, when suffering, when people weep in suffering, the Jew weeps, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to be a very um, simple but profound idea that he saw injustice in the world. And um, I asked you, what do you think it was in our Jewish tradition that led him to, to care so much about that suffering? Is it the notion of um, do not do, as Hillel said, do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you, um, or the golden rule? Is it um, the notion that we get from the Torah that everyone is made but Selim Elohim, that's made in the image of God, and therefore we need to um, lift them up if they're suffering? Or is it this prophetic notion that, um, that Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and, and um, Micah all spoke about the, the widow, the stranger, the orphan, the neediest among you, um, who, who, as you said, can't necessarily care for themselves, it's our responsibility to care for them. And you said, um, actually, it was all of the above. Mm-hmm. For him, it was all of those different aspects in Judaism right. that drove him to want to, um, n- not just to want to, but to feel responsible to make a difference in that way. Oh, absolutely. He was, a, he was very much a believer and, and an activist at heart. And I think he was... I talked to his son, John, briefly about this. John was not really sure... But he said his dad was always for the little guy, always wanted to help the underdog. And, you know, some people do, some people don't. Some people find an avenue to carry out that call. And I think Judaism provided Rabbi Wax with that avenue. And I think once he got to the HUC and studied it even more, it became more a part of his life than just a feeling it became his passion, his career, his calling. And, um, and I think he was surrounded at the time by people who felt the same way. His, his idols at the HUC, his real idol was um, Rabbi Jacob Rader Marcus. Uh, he worshiped, and as a matter of fact, when he was finally accepted to the HUC, Rabbi Marcus said to him, well, Mr. Wax, how do you think you will like living at the Hebrew Union College? And, and Rabbi Wax said to him, well, I've never lived among Jews before, but I think I might like it. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think it was a new, whole new world for him. Remember that he had no real Jewish exposure, but what little he did have, plus the encouragement of his neighbors in Herculaneum, I think going to rabbinical school made a lot of sense to him. And it was, it was a challenge. And... Um, and I think when he got there, he made a lot of friends. He made one really close friend for the rest of his life, a rabbi, Richard Hertz, and they were together forever. I, as I recall in the narrative, Rabbi Hertz said about Rabbi Wax, well, we, they met on the steps of the HUC, both in the same class, and he said, um, we had a lot in common. We admired the same people at the HUC. He said, we... We put $5 together and bought a suit, and whoever had the date got to wear the suit. And they um, shared a lot of granddad. So, you know, we... I love that. Try to make a human out of him, too. Yeah, and it's such a funny image uh, to me growing up so many years later that you would wear a suit on a date. Yeah. Uh, But (laughs) but I love that. 
But I also just want to lift up this um, I, idolization or lionization of, um, rightfully so, of um, Rabbi Dr. Jacob Rader Marcus, who uh, was also the, the idol and the mentor of um, our current senior rabbi, Rabbi right. Micah Greenstein, um, for whom his son Jake uh, is named after, his, right. his first son Jake. Um, and it's just tremendous, the impact that Rabbi Marcus has had. He is known as the the great historian of American Judaism, and he's the founder of the American Jewish Archives. It's, right. it's actually uh, you know so fitting that it's in the archives he founded that all of this material um, that we have from Rabbi Wax is, is preserved in. That's right. And, and one other um, idol that he also had, somebody he admired, was Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was actually one of the founders of the uh, NAACP. And um, that's not lost on a lot of people. And as a matter of fact, the NAACP Memphis chapter is one of the sponsors of this exhibit. Hmm. So, um, you know, he, he became, he, he entered the HUC as a, as, as a Jew, and he left as a Jewish leader. And from there, he you know, found a uh, rabbinate position in uh, St. Louis, and then during the war, he, he actually, during World War II, he, his best friend, Richard Hertz, who was an assistant associate rabbi at a synagogue in Glencoe, Illinois, got hold of him and said, would you come up here and replace me while I go into the chaplaincy corps? And actually, Rabbi Wax uh, applied to um, be in the chaplaincy corps of World War II also, but he was rejected. Um, his, the reason he was underweight, <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't think he ran out and, and uh, tried to put on much weight at the time, but um, he did. He served that, that congregation in Glencoe, and while he was in Glencoe during the war, he was invited to come back to Herculaneum to speak at the Methodist Church again, they, and his speech was on the front page of the Herculaneum newspaper, and a thousand people came to see him. Wow. So... His, his roots are deeply embedded in Herculaneum, and uh, uh, we have a lot about that, but, but he grew into, and, and into the rabbinate. And, and from Glencoe after the war, he went back to St. Louis briefly uh, when a position opened, and he heard about the position opened as assistant rabbi in Memphis, Tennessee. So let's talk about that. Once he got to Memphis, and um, he was working uh, as the assistant to Rabbi Edelson, and I know... Uh, very soon after he came, he was promoted to associate rabbi. But how did his social justice, um, um, what's the word? How did his social justice inclinations start to play out once he was here in Memphis? Well, I, I really think that after all the research we did, I came to realize that it was a perfect fit for Rabbi Wax because Rabbi Edelson was also a leader. And a true believer in not in classical Judaism more so than Rabbi Wax, but uh, he was a leader in the world of social justice and um, and that communities Christian communities get together with Jewish communities and and the community should be one and so I believe that Rabbi Edelson was quite supportive hmm. of Rabbi Wax and as soon as Rabbi Wax got here and uh, he started getting involved in the community one of one of the first things that um, Rabbi Wax did um, after a couple of years, of course, was 
um, he was not just a believer in social justice in the sense of civil rights, but also a believer in social justice uh, for people who suffered with mental health issues. And this was, now this is back in 1949 and 1950, when it was a societal shame to have a mental health issue. And um, he was- There was a lot, a tremendous amount of stigma. Yeah. There still is today. Still is today. But back then, it was almost not talked about. And, and that's when he said, I, I have to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. Mm. And the Tennessee governor, Frank Clement, uh, I think it was in 1953, appointed Rabbi Wax to the first board of trustees of the Tennessee Mental Health uh, Association. And he, he was then reappointed by five governors over the next 25 years. So it was a cause in which he, he served and also um, brought to Tennessee mental health care that w- was not here yes. without him and without his influence and quiet lobbying. Um, different programs were started solely, maybe not solely, but in large part due to his insistence and, and tireless effort. The only other real confrontation we could find outside of the one he had with Mayor Henry Loeb was during his service on the Mental Health Commission, um, he had a confrontation with Governor Ray Blanton over um, some patronage issues at the uh, Western State Hospital in Bolivar, Tennessee, and um, and that, that became a headline in all the newspapers of the time around the state of Tennessee when basically Rabbi Wax basically told him he didn't know what he was doing. It's uh, it's hard to imagine the the chutzpah kind of that that must have taken for, um, I mean, you know, in in Memphis, Temple Israel is it has been f- ever since Rabbi Samfield um, prominent and um, had strong relationships with different churches and institutions throughout the city. Right. But we don't, think about the state of Tennessee as being particularly, um, I don't know if I'd say welcoming, but particularly um, a, a very a wonderful place for Jews to be outspoken, let's say, um, especially in those years. So for, for him to pick a, a, an ar- a public argument calling out the, ma- the governor of the state for, for putting in, you know, for patronage, for putting in his own people um, instead of competent professionals, that that must have been a relatively, I, I don't know if I'd say dangerous, but certainly um, not an easy thing for him to do. I think you're right, and you, you call it chutzpah. Um, I call it courage. Mm. Um, and I think Rabbi Wax would call it neither one of those. I think he would say, I did it because it was the right thing to do and didn't see it as courage or chutzpah. And, um, and I think that's really the basic thought he had in everything he did. It was the right thing to do. Um, even when he became rabbi at Temple Israel, when he became the head rabbi in 1954, and Edelson retired, Rabbi Edelson retired, um, he made changes within the congregation that certainly were in line with classical reform Judaism, but he made changes because he felt for Jews it was the right thing to do. And I mean, it sounds silly these days, but 
um, he, um, he brought, instituted Hebrew classes at, for the Sunday school. And that's especially interesting since he was reared without Hebrew. Uh, he forbade the serving of shellfish and pork inside of temple, and this is the barbecue capital of the world. Uh, and, you know, he, he did things like that. He um, offered bar and bat mitzvah, I mean bar mitzvah, not bat mitzvah at the time, opportunities for young men, who young boys whose parents wanted their sons bar mitzvah. So he made changes here. Um, which were accepted, although some people pushed back, but they were certainly accepted. And, and I think it, he was leading a congregation here who liked him and respected him and went along with a lot that he did. Mm. So we'll get back to, in, in just a moment, the how liked or unliked he was, which was very clear with all the letters that he got um, immediately following what he said to Mayor Lowe. But let's talk about that incident. Um, and and it, it was more than just the confrontation, the march uh, with the ministers and the confrontation with Mayor Loeb. This um, lobbying on behalf of the san- striking sanitation workers, which Martin Luther King came in for, was an issue which um, Rabbi Wax had been working on yes. well before Dr. King was in town. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about um, his work to try to, uh, to on behalf of the sanitation workers, and also his, uh, I'll just say, Mayor Loeb uh, was not just a politician to him, not just a, an elected official. They had a personal relationship because Mayor Loeb grew up um, in the congregation with Rabbi Wax as his rabbi. And um, later, um, I don't know if I would... I don't know if the proper term would be left Judaism, but certainly was no longer a practicing um, or or attending person at Temple, um, and so. But they had a personal relationship. Can you talk a little bit about what that period was like for for Rabbi Wax? Well, I think b- even before um, the sanitation workers went on strike, there was um, there were problems. There was a threatening of the strike, and, and Rabbi Wax was very much involved in trying to get that all settled. Um, and this and this exhibit goes into that, explains in detail um, uh, his participation in it with other people throughout the community. Um, and they couldn't get Henry Loeb, the mayor, to budge on anything. And um, I believe the strike began. It, the strike was based on grievances that the sanitation workers had. Um, safety at work, cleanliness at work, uh, um, of course, pay and hours. And um, But in February of 1968, two sanitation workers were killed on the trucks um, one day, and that spurred, that was really two days later, the strike began. And Mayor Loeb would not negotiate with the union, would not speak to him, would not, he was obstinate about it. And um, no matter what Rabbi Wax did within the minister's union, it, it, it couldn't, he couldn't get Henry Loeb to come around and, and negotiate and settle with the, with the striking sanitation workers. And eventually, you know what happened. Um, Martin Luther King was invited to come to Memphis. He did come, and then he came back on uh, April the 4th, and uh, he was assassinated on April the 5th. 
Rabbi Wax gave many speeches in, uh, in support of civil rights and the right thing to do. And um, this congregation was very, very much aware of his position. Was everyone in agreement? Actually, no. But um, he was secure in his rabbinate, he was secure in his position, and he knew he was doing the right thing. So when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Rabbi Wax, um, after his confrontation that Friday with Mayor Loeb, gave an impassionate sermon, and that's part of this exhibit also. Um, and, you know, he, he led that march um, down Poplar to, to City Hall, and uh, there were, they were, these ministers were escorted by squad cars and um, police snipers on rooftops, guns drawn everywhere, and it was a scary time. It was really a frightening time. And I had lunch, um, this is not in the exhibit, but I had lunch uh, years ago with uh, Reverend Frank McRae. He was during the civil rights era. He was a very close friend of Rabbi Wax, and he was a minister at um, St. John's United Methodist Church here. And, and he was marching behind Rabbi Wax towards City Hall. And he, I said, well, I said, Frank, what, what, really, what was it like to march down the street with Rabbi Wax, and he said, well, Susan, he said, at one point I looked around and put my hand on Jimmy's shoulder, and I said, Jimmy, not so fast. I'm scared to death. And he said, his friend Rabbi Wax turned to him and said, so am I. It was a very, very, very scary time. So, um, and I, I don't think it's something that we quite appreciate these days. I mean, we um, stand up for social justice and we campaign for social justice and we teach our children to do the right thing. But the courage that it took at that time for these ministers, they, they, they really, uh, it, it's not an overstatement to say they faced death to demand that this city do as Rabbi Wax would say to Henry Loeb in his office, to do what's right by the laws of man and God. Hmm. Well, I want to read a quote from Rabbi Wax from that day sure. that we feature in the exhibit. This, I believe, was um, a quote from what he, um, yeah, speaking to Mayor Henry Loeb. He says, we, we come here this morning and this is, of course, with the, the ministers that they had just marched across the city. Um, and before I read it, I, I just want to say I think you're totally right. Courage is the only word. Um, somebody who had been um, assassinated out of, you know, from a sniper in a window across the street just the day before, here are hundreds of ministers marching through downtown Memphis with thousands of windows that they could have been shot from right. at any time. Mm -hmm. um, it is just a bravery and courage that we, um, we should remember and honor to this day and, and forever. But this is what he said. We come here this morning with a great deal of sadness in our hearts, but also a great deal of anger, sir. What has happened in our city is a result of injustice and oppression and lack of human decency and concern. For human beings shall be ruled with justice and justice for all. I realize we live in a society of law and order. We must have laws. But I would remind you most respectfully, sir, there are laws that are greater than the laws of Memphis and Tennessee, 
The laws of God and the laws of God are not subject to any Gallup poll. Speak out in favor of humanity of, and human dignity for every person. Let us not hide behind legal technicalities. Let us not wrap ourselves up in slogans. Let us do the will of God for the good of the city. That's right. I remember as a freshman in college, um, I was um, in my dorm and we were going to dinner on that that evening of that day, and um, the television in the lobby was on, and the evening news, the CBS Evening News, which was led by a man named Walter Cronkite, which I'm sure anybody under anybody under 60 doesn't remember, and and I saw my rabbi talking to the mayor of my hometown emotionally and with those words, and I remember standing there. Th- thinking to myself, wow, that's my rabbi, and wow, isn't he right? And I was, you know, I was actually in the state of Missouri, at the University of Missouri, in his honor, I guess. Great um, journalism program. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so he, he did influence a lot of people, a lot of young people, and I think it, as I've been researching this exhibit, thinking about his influence on me also. Hmm. And um, but his words to Mayor Loeb, who yes, you're right, he was a member of this congregation. He was confirmed in this congregation. Um, but as Rabbi Danziger in one of the videos that we have says that Henry Loeb was was a member of our congregation during his first term as mayor and uh, a member of the church <laughs> during his second uh, his second term in office. Um, they were friends. Mayor Loeb and Rabbi Wax. And as a matter of fact, if I recall, Mayor Loeb, a cup a day after the confrontation or two days later, called Rabbi Wax at home and said, I understand that you're getting threats and I'd like to send them, I'm going to send the Memphis police to guard your home. And Rabbi Wax graciously refused. Hmm. Why, do you, why did he refuse? I don't think he wanted to call any more attention to mm. his home where he lived, but I think that he felt that um, he would be okay and that uh, that his wife would be okay. But it was a tough time. It was a very difficult time. And um, we also quote um, Rabbi Wax's widow, Helen Wax, um, in the narrative about what it was like at the time. But after that speech is when he got all those letters. And people have to realize that once again, you didn't, you know, you, you got phone calls with uh, nasty comments or phone calls and people hung up or you got letters in the mail. And um, it's amazing that we have a record of all those letters. He kept them all. And I have to tell you, some of the letters of opposition came from members of this congregation. and some, But most of the letters of opposition came from throughout the community and throughout the Mid-South. Hmm. Uh, and the letters of support, quite a few came from this congregation and um, came from the faith community in Memphis and throughout the Mid-South. Hmm. So he he did face a lot of resistance. Yes. Um, and he surely knew that he would, um, standing up to the mayor, standing up for civil rights in the Deep South in the 1960s that week. Um 
of course he had been for many years before that too. But he talks, I want to find this quote, he talks about uh, the, the necessity to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. The necessity as a rabbi, he felt like it was his role to um, speak the word of God, to speak what he thought God would have wanted the people, whether they were ready to hear it, whether they wanted to hear it or not. Um, see if I can just find this quote very quickly. He got a good deal of support from his congregation. And although he did get some pushback from members of the congregation, but the board of directors after this confrontation also sent him a letter of support. Hmm. Which, and I know that was very comforting because many ministers, white ministers in town who, who were with Rabbi Wax <clears throat> on that march lost their, lost their pulpits. Hmm. Which it's, it's interesting that his idol was, uh, or one of his idols was Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, who left his synagogue in New York City. Um, he was at one of the major ones. I can't remember which one. And um, started his own synagogue because they wanted to restrict his, uh, what he said on the pulpit. And he started, it's now called the Stephen S. Wise Free Synagogue. Mm-hmm. It's not because membership is free, right. uh, but because there uh, he, had, he, he said, I'm starting the synagogue, and this synagogue will always have freedom of the pulpit. And now many synagogues around the country, and including you, you talk about in, in this exhibit, how uh, Temple Israel has been so insistent on freedom of the pulpit as well for so many years. And it's, it is um, heartening to know that the board of trustees in that moment reassured him. Um, but I want to read this quote. Um, when he was asked about his own legacy, he said, uh, the most difficult part was to stand on the pulpit and say what you did not want to hear, the inner suffering of saying what was not popular. But the responsibility of the rabbi is to speak the word of God as he understood it. I've never enjoyed controversy. It was very difficult for me. But if a rabbi is true to his word, he must be involved in fighting racial prejudice and injustice and social oppression. Um, He goes on a little bit, but he says, why I spoke what I did, why I did what I did, I felt like I was mandated by God. Such a strong faith for a person for whom the ritual aspects of Judaism were, you could maybe say, unimportant. They were just you, secondary to his, his beliefs. Cer- yeah, certainly not emphasized. Cer- yeah, secondary. That's a great way to put it. I think it. we write in the exhibit, I think it's, uh, um, he believed in rights, um, hmm. R-I-G-H-T-S, over rights, R-I-T-E-S. And he did. Uh, he, I don't think he shortchanged Judaism, but looking back on it, you know, his congregation and his students may not have been as well schooled in all the um, rituals of Judaism, but they certainly left um, his tutelage knowing the importance of social justice. Hmm. So speaking of his students, uh, people like you who were inspired by him, um, so many who it, it is tr- actually just amazing to think about how people like you watching on their TV screens 
um, could have, all over the country, could have looked and said, here is a person who's standing up for what is right. And the, the strength that that must have given other people in their own lives to stand up for what's right, um, it does go to show the power of one person to make a difference. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And, and you know, if I look back on that, watching Rabbi Wax on, on television from my dorm in college, and I remember saying, wow, I don't think I really understood the gravity of it at the time. But now that I'm 50 years later, um, I certainly do. And um, But, you know, I just Rabbi Wax came into the rabbinate here um, standing on the shoulders of some fabulous rabbis that preceded him here in the world of social justice. And, and we actually do feature them oh, really? in, the, in the museum, yeah, yes, in the exhibit. Um, but, um, but following Rabbi Wax, standing on his shoulders, and future generations will stand on the shoulders of Rabbi Danziger and, and Rabbi Greenstein because they, too, carried that prophetic call of doing what's right by those who need it. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot, even though we're featuring Rabbi Wax in this exhibit, and he certainly, certainly is deserving of everything we've done in the exhibit and probably a lot more, um, we could probably do an exhibit on Rabbi Danziger and Rabbi Greenstein the same way. But Rabbi Danziger is very much a part of this exhibit. And Rabbi Greenstein has been extremely supportive with this exhibit. Hmm. It's, a, it's really kind of a clarion call to all of us Jews that don't forget that, that this man, Rabbi Wax, did what was right because it was the right thing to do, and we should too. Amen to that. Amen to that. And as somebody who um, is able to preach from the same pulpit as as he um, preached from, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that he was the the senior rabbi when this campus, we're, we're here at the East Massive campus of Temple Israel, um, was, was founded. Um, it is a tremendous responsibility um, and also a tremendous zechudas, tremendous um, honor um, and, and merit to be able to follow in the footsteps and stand on the shoulders of somebody like Rabbi Wax who did so much for Temple, for Memphis, for humanity. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And, and this temple that we're on in Me on East Massey was really um, in part the vision and dream of Rabbi Wax. Um, we will, history will remember him for um, his courage in the world of social justice and civil rights. But this synagogue needs to re also remember Rabbi Wax for the man who helped to make this temple Israel, this 1376 East Massey Road possible. And of all the things that people will remember and history will remember Rabbi Wax for, what was most meaningful to him personally was the building of this synagogue. So that, that's what I wanted to ask you about next. After everything he did, his proudest achievement, when asked what he wanted his legacy to be, this building, this synagogue, yes. is, is, was his proudest achievement. And I want to read for, for you a quote that he gave um, at the dedication of the new temple. 
Um, and he talks about the importance of this, this place. Um, and I was really struck by what he links um, in his mind, the building of this new space um, to in Jewish history. This is what he says. Um, the completion of this magnificent structure is an extraordinary achievement of which we can all be proud. By building this temple, we have demonstrated our will, our determination um, to keep alive the religious heritage of our people. So our will and our determination to keep alive the religious heritage of our people. He then says, we of this generation witnessed the greatest threat to Jewish survival in our long history. Like all of you, I had read and heard about Auschwitz. But it was not until I walked into that place that I learned the meaning of Jewish history. I emerged from that horrible place a different person with an understanding of what it means to die for the sanctification of God's name. That's, that's um, a term for um, being, in a sense, martyred, kiddush uh, Hashem, for dying for your Judaism. Um, he says, I returned to Memphis with a passionate determination that we should do everything we could to perpetuate and strengthen Jewish life. Yes, I pleaded, I implored that we build a new temple. I look upon this new temple as a means by which to sustain our people and perpetuate our heritage. This synagogue unites us with our fathers in a bond that endures and expresses the meaning and purpose of Jewish survival. Um, he finishes, Indeed, the dedication of this temple transcends time and place, even as a synagogue was the prime institution in Jewish life in the past, it is no exaggeration to assert that it must be the central institution of Jewish life in America if the Jew and Judaism are to survive. Yep. Why in his mind does he link the building of this space, of this magnificent building, to Auschwitz, to the Holocaust? Why are those so connected in his mind? Well, he had, he had never been there before. He had, you know, he had only read about, uh, he knew many members of his congregation were Holocaust survivors. He, he had actually never walked that place. I think you have to, I believe now that Rabbi Wax, for all of his intellect and all of his great skills, he was a very emotional man. And um, if you, if you go to Israel, or you go to, God, I hate to link the two, but you go to Auschwitz, um, two very emotional places for Jews, then the emotions that are stirred, then you understand, and I think he understood by going to Auschwitz, what Jewish survival, the importance of Jewish survival and what it was all about. And I do recall um, in the research that Rabbi Wax um, knew that Temple Israel was um, long at Poplar and Montgomery here in Memphis, and uh, but he saw that his congregation was moving eastward. Their homes were moving eastward. They weren't located all in the center of the city and in close proximity of Poplar and Montgomery anymore, but moving to the east. And he heard um, a congregate saying, it takes us so long to get here, or he saw numbers dropping in the Sunday school. And he knew that um, he had always believed that the, the synagogue is the central place for Jews to gather, the central place for Jews 
Reformed Jews to be. And I think uh, com combine that knowledge with the emotional impact that um, walking through Auschwitz, uh, the death camp of Jews, was on him. I think he brought back here this great, great passion of really understanding why we needed a synagogue in the heart of the Jewish community here. And, and that was, um, I think that was part of, a big part of his reason. And, and also, keep in mind, he had members of his congregation who agreed with him. Um, he had some members who pushed against it uh, and um, thought it was Wax's folly, but he proved him wrong. And his supporters helped him and raised the money, and, and um, much of the fundraising was, was led by uh, temple congregate Abe Plow, who was a great philanthropist and, and benefactor of, of this temple. And um, he and uh, S.L. Kopal and, and um, Sam Cooper and, and many others um, got together and were able to mobilize the congregation to raise the money to buy the property out here and, and to build this magnificent edifice. Um, you'll find, uh, I guess uh, you read a little bit in the narrative, but people who visit the exhibit will, will find out that this was not the first piece of property that Temple Israel bought out east. Um, they bought another piece, which is uh, right located in the heart of East Memphis, and they sat on it for 10 years. But the wisdom of that was by sitting on it for 10 years, it increased in value. So the money that they, that they were able to sell that piece of property for was used to buy this one way out east. It's, it's kind of a very interesting story, especially a real estate transaction, and I think uh, people might find that quite interesting. Yeah, it sure is. It, it's... They, they bought it thinking that they could move soon, immediately. And then when the board uh, or the congregation rejected it, um, they still own this property. And it uh, you you uh, write, or we write in the narrative, they bought it for around $100,000, right. sold it 10 years later for a million dollars. And uh, that helped pay for, for this space on Massey, this 30-acre plot of land uh, for people who are... Uh, interested in this topic, I just want to direct you to Judy Ringel's excellent book, um, Children of Israel, about the history of our congregation, which goes into a lot of the detail. Um, or or uh, she was the very first guest on Tour to the People, our podcast. So if you're interested in this particular bit of history about moving from um, Midtown, downtown um, to, to East Memphis, that's all in the book and oh, in that okay. podcast. And I want to give a shout out to Judy Ringel. Um, Judy uh, wrote, um, Tom Jones and I wrote the narrative to this exhibit, and the, uh, you'll see it along the timeline, but Judy um, just was wonderful. She wrote the panel about all the former rabbis before Wa Rabbi Wax and Harry Dansker and, and um, Rabbi Greenstein, and um, it, that's going to be part of the exhibit. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, it is going back to this building and his vision for the Jewish future, I mean, it really truly was visionary to say if um, the Jewish people are going to continue, and, and particularly the Jewish people here in Memphis, that um, we as a Jewish house of worship, as a Jewish, um, the, the Hebrew word for synagogue is Beit Knesset, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean house of worship or house of study, it means house of gathering. Um, and for 
Temple Israel to remain relevant, um, to inspire the next generation of Jews, they needed to adapt. Um, just as two generations before he did, before uh, Rabbi Wax was here, the early reform rabbis, the early reformers said, we, if we want Judaism to continue, we can't have these services that last for three hours with, in a language that nobody understands. And, um, and they, that uh, a Judaism based not on ritual, but on social justice, um, just as they adapted for Judaism for the times, uh, picking up what to emphasize and what to place as secondary. Um, Rabbi Wax had this tremendous vision for how to uh, keep Judaism relevant for another generation and a generation and another generation after that. So we're certainly indebted to him and to that vision and to his tireless work um, creating and, and um, carrying on a community that we are blessed to be a part of today. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, one other thing, I, a little bit of an insight, I got into Rabbi Wax doing all this research and listening to so much audio that uh, he left behind, is that when I said a little bit earlier that he, there was a real emotional streak about Rabbi Wax, <clears throat> there really was. And it wasn't all the same kind of emotion. Um, you'll see in the video when Rabbi Wax confronts Mayor Loeb a certain level of emotion there. But you'll hear um, at the dedication of this, this synagogue on Massey Road you'll hear another level of emotion in his voice. Will you turn, please, to page 150 and rise for the adoration. Let us adore the ever-living God, render praise unto him, who spread out the heavens and established the earth, whose glory is revealed in the heavens above, whose greatness is manifest throughout the world. He is our God, there is none else. We bow the head in reverence and worship the King of Kings, the Holy One, praise be He. Vanachnu kori imu mishtachavimu modim, lifne melach malachi amalokim, hakadosh boroku. And that, and that was really at the, um, the end of his career. And so, you know, great men are very complex usually. And Rabbi Wax was a very complex man. But fundamentally, he was a man of good heart and great courage. And I think every, every congregant at this Temple Israel should be proud to know that... Um, they too, as we said earlier, stand on his shoulders. Well, I just want to thank you for gathering and curating and um, really bringing from idea to wonderful and beautiful creation this exhibit honoring this really exceptional man and rabbi. Um, and of course, just the, the legacy of Rabbi Wax speaks for himself, and I hope that you will all um, come and visit and see it. In closing, is there anything that you got out of your two years of research and work on this exhibit 
that, um, that you want to share in addition to everything that's already been said? Well, I, I mean, I, I learned a few extra quotes about Rabbi Wax that um, um, I share with friends that are not included. I wish more than anything we could include everything we learned. Uh, um, when I remember when Tom <clears throat> wrote the first draft of the narrative and sent it to me, I remember I picked up the phone and I said, for crying out loud, Tom, I ask you to write a museum exhibit, not War and Peace. <laughs> and, and so we edited it down and then we wrote it again and we edited it down and we finally got it to a more manageable place. But I think what, uh, what we really like to do is eventually put the entire narrative, everything that was written and everything that was learned on the Temple Israel website eventually so people can really dive in to learning as much about Rabbi Wax and his histories as possible. But we still have many members of this congregation who were not only Rabbi Wax's students, but were Rabbi Wax's friends. And I'm only hoping that um, they too will get a little peek inside of their friend and realize they knew he was a great guy, but really what a great man he was. Mm. And Rabbi. Well, we hope that this is just the beginning of um, this conversation and um, really, um, I don't know if I want to say renaissance, but just beginning of a recognition 50 years later um, of this tremendous person and legacy that he left. Um, we hope to have more podcasts in this series, maybe with some of his friends um, and people that he knew well personally in those years. Uh, but um, that will all... It's all ancillary. It's all um, just gravy compared to the tremendous exhibit that you put together and your committee and your team put together. So we hope that you'll all come out uh, to see it. It'll be open um, for at least a few months, probably longer. Oh, longer, probably. Um, and it will always be a part of Temple's history, and um, it will stay in our archives even if it's no longer up. Uh, but we encourage you to come as soon as you can um, to see it, to enjoy it, to tell your friends. Uh, it is really just a tremendous, tremendous project that you put together. Can I just say one please, more word? Please. Um, Rabbi, thank you for giving us this opportunity to spread the word about the exhibit. Uh, it officially opens September 18th. Um, we'll have a big reception from 3 to 5, and everybody is invited. But I also really, and I mean this sincerely, want to thank a few people. Please. Who who helped make this exhibit possible? Not just uh, I think I think the Memphis Room at the Memphis Public Library, um, the American Jewish Archives. Um, I I don't want to miss anybody, but I and believe it or not, the Historical Society of Herculaneum, Missouri. <laughs> there is such a thing, and <clears throat> and also I want to thank Rabbi Greenstein for his interest. Rabbi Danziger for not only his interest, but he too, like Rabbi Greenstein for the time he has, has dedicated to this exhibit. Everybody that we interviewed, and there are too many, too many people to, um, to thank. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Stacy Canales, the Temple Executive Director, and Scott Giles here at Temple. Everybody has lent a, a great helping hand um, and as, as soon as the exhibit opens, everybody will understand why these thank yous are very much in order.
Mm-hmm. And of course, to John Wax, yes, um, Rabbi Wax's son, who donated so much personal material and also knowledge and, and insight that no one else would have known about and, his dad. And John's brother, James and Wax J- Jr., who lives in California, and um, he certainly was very helpful through email. Hmm. And so it's we have a lot of people to thank. And if I've missed somebody, my deepest apologies, but. But everybody who lent a hand in this exhibit knows who did it. And um, not just but me, but the museum at Temple Israel and our board of directors, who's led by Elaine Kaufman, we're all profoundly grateful. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for being here, Susie, for all of this work. Thank you, uh, dear listeners, for listening. We hope to see you in person at this exhibit. And we'll certainly see you next time on Tour to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. Thanks for being with us. Take care.